Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the show. Wow, we have a big, big show today. There's a lot going on. Uh, it's not cheery, to be honest with you, but we are in the worst, darkest timeline. So we can only discuss the material we have, which is, generally speaking, pretty bleak. Now, later in the programme, we're going to be talking about something which is exceptionally important. And it's exceptionally important for a number of reasons. It's a scandal involving the BBC. We're all tax uh, licensed payers, of course. It's our national broadcaster. It's supposed to be something as a nation we're proud of. And it's journalism is supposed to be rigorous and impartial. There's big question marks over that full stop. But they published an article which whipped up bigotry against trans people. And uh, since there have been some shocking developments. Now, we're going to be talking about that later in the programme. What it says about the continued escalating campaign against one of the most marginalised minorities in the country and what it says about the state of the BBC and its journalism, including some behind-the-scenes stuff we have having spoken to people at the BBC. We're also talking, of course, about COP26. Is it a greenwash or is it a step forward for a human civilization which faces a pretty terrible and terrifying existential menace because of a climate emergency? But first, we're talking about our government, our overtly corrupt uh, government. And this is obviously in the aftermath of the Owen Patterson lobbying row. Um, now, I'm going to bring in actually a clip shortly because I think this clip just sums up what, what the scandal is about. But I suppose one of the dangerous things about this scandal is it has already for a long time that sense of there's one rule for some powerful people, the people running the country, and another set of rules for everybody else. I think people have generally accepted that as something they almost take as read, a fact of life, like rain on a bank holiday. But it is so corrosive to democracy because it breeds a sense of cynicism uh, and people disengage from the political process as a result, which, perversely enough, actually helps destroy accountability uh, for those politicians responsible for this behaviour. But it's also about the fact that a government tried to change the rules to protect one of their own, the sort of behaviour you might expect, frankly, in, for example, Hungary, a country which also ruled by a centre-right party, which radicalised in power and used culture wars to attack and undermine democracy, civil society and its opponents. We're not hungry yet, but in darker moments, I worry that's the way we're going. Now, before I bring in our first guest, the brilliant investigative journalist, Peter Gagan, we've got a clip from Ian Hislop, just for those who aren't maybe up to speed with this scandal. And this was on Having Got News For You. And it's just a good pricey. It's a good summary of, of the scandal. So let's see what he said. Government to cover up the misdeeds of one of their own Tory MPs and to undermine democracy, transparency and accountability. And they failed. 
uh, due to the fact that it was so bloody blatant um, <laughs> that even they didn't get away with it. So there's a man called Owen Patterson who was paid 100,000 a year to lobby on behalf of two companies. He did. The Commissioner for Standards <laughs> looked into him, found he was guilty, said, you did it. He said, I didn't do it, it wasn't me, I haven't had a chance to plead my case. He had. It's absolutely unbelievably uh, clear-cut. And then all his Tory mates started a campaign and the Prime Minister said, oh, right, we're changing the entire system now. He was going to be suspended for 30 days, they said, no, he's not. And all the Tory MPs voted it through. I mean, they should all be ashamed of themselves. It's absolutely disgraceful. I mean, a few others, Peter Bottomley and a, a few other Tory MPs didn't. But basically, they said, if you criticise us, we're going to change the system. I mean, it was really quite shocking. I think because the, the Parliamentary Commissioner for Standards had looked into the Prime Minister's free holiday in Mystique. So I think it might have been an act of revenge. I can't prove that, but I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> It's a good summary. It's a good, succinct, uh, pithy summary of the scandal. Now, we're going to talk about that in detail. Before I do, usual housekeeping. Please do click through on YouTube. I know a lot of you always watch on Facebook, but it helps the show if you click on the YouTube link. However much I plead, you probably won't do it. Uh, but click on like uh, if you click through to YouTube and click subscribe. Uh, you can also support the show and uh, put questions to our guests using Super Chat on YouTube. I will thank everybody individually at the end, as always. And uh, finally, our documentary, I know I keep saying this, our documentary uh, on the war of property developers against working class communities is out next week. Uh, I'm finally finishing the script and it's all been put together. So that's very exciting. You made that possible. Uh, the team on Union Wages, that's on Patreon.com. Patreon.com forward slash Owen Jones 84. Your support even just three quid a month, that enables us to do more and more of those documentaries. We're planning to do a lot more in the coming weeks and months, like our Tory conference, Labour conference, uh, our, our various documentaries about, for example, the profiteers of the COVID crisis. Uh, so uh, you can use Super Chat or Patreon to support us as we do more of those. Also, for those listening on the podcast, thank you as ever. Um, that's obviously a massive part of our audience these days. And uh, do subscribe and leave a review if you feel so obliging now we're going to bring in our first brilliant guest uh, peter gagan who is the editor-in-chief of open democracy best-selling author many other hats as well i suppose peter how you doing peter very well Owen. lovely to see you um, and we're talking about a subject that never really seems to go away which is corruption in british politics we're talking about covert contracts and last time i was on your show was to talk about that and now we're talking another aspect of corruption yeah, we continue just descending into the mire. I suppose that's the running theme. I just want to show you a clip first, you beat it. Just I want to just see your, uh, because we're going to bring in the brilliant scoops and so on that Open Democracy have done, doing brilliant investigative work. Do support Open Democracy. I'll talk about that afterwards. Uh, but here's a clip from Nadim Zari, who is a Tory cabinet minister being interviewed about Owen Paterson and the scandal. You read the Standards Committee report into Owen Paterson and his case, it's very clear what they think. Uh, it's very clear what Owen Paterson thinks, which is the opposite. Whose side are you on? Who's right? Owen Paterson or the committee? So, look, as far as Owen Paterson's concerned, he's now resigned. The Standards Committee... Well, that doesn't matter, I'm, though, because there's still the issue. I'm, I'm going to get to that. I actually haven't read the report, so it would be unfair of me to go through So you voted on this without having read the no, no, report? No, no, no. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. Hold, just bear with me a second, right? I've... I've looked at the report i haven't gone into the details owen says that you know, much of it is contested right i think something like 14 people have sent statements that it's contested 
That is a specific case. The Standards Committee have judged on that, and Jacob Rees-Mogg came back to the House and said, we will have a vote on that this coming week. Of course, events have overtaken that because Owen has now resigned on this. The important thing to focus on is that we want a process that carries the confidence of the nation. That is right, because MPs of all parties should have the right of appeal. I'm quite surprised you voted on something really important that you hadn't even read. No, I, I, I said to you I hadn't gone to the detail of his... Okay. Of, you asked me who he, he's contested it. Okay. okay. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to say to you... Fair enough. Okay. What he contested, yeah. right, is something I, I can't stand here in front of you and say, you know, I know all the details of, of the 14 statements that sure. have been made. Okay, I get you. Do you think... Wild ride there. So I haven't read it. Oh, I haven't got into the details. I mean, the fact, just tell us your just general reaction to this specific scandal and the government's response and what it tells us. I think Ian Hislop, as you say, is an incredibly succinct summation of it. I think it was great that someone like him at a primetime show was saying just how bad this is, frankly. It really is. It's jaw-dropping. Like, I've done work on anti-corruption for years. I have a lot of people in, like, kind of experts in this space who I talk to. Everybody was absolutely shocked what happened this week. To put enough, to just put it in the broadest terms, what happened was a government MP, a former minister, a Brexiteer, friends of lots of prominent conservatives, was due to be um, have been suspended from the Commons for thirty days. He clearly broken the rules. This is, you know, it's a really open and shut case. It's hard, I can barely remember a case as open and shut as this. And in response to this, the government attempted to rip out the entire standards process and say, well, actually, we have a huge problem with the standards process. We want to bring in a new one. And that means Owen Patterson is going to be get off scot-free. It's absolutely incredible. And yes, there was a turnaround and a backlash. And I think it's easy to kind of go, OK, they've stopped it now because of the backlash. But that's really, that's a very dangerous place to be because we're now accepting that even the kind of pretty bad rules we have already, we're pleased to have them today because the government was going to get rid of them altogether in a quite urbanist sort of move, a very kind of almost a Hungarian move. But the reality is the government was going to do that. It was perfectly willing to do that and very much so to be perfectly willing to do it again. Now, we'll talk about this a bit more in terms of um, what this scandal says, but I just want to bring in the brilliant work Open, Open Democracy's done. So let's bring up the splash, the Open Democracy. Yeah, want to see it in the House of Lords, be Tory treasurer and donate three million. Exclusive Tory, senior Tory accuses Boris Johnson of overseeing a scandal on plain sight as it's revealed party treasurers who donate three million are almost always offered peerages. And in fact, we can see that on the front page of the Sunday Times as well. So just just talk us through that. And it's interesting because I know I've seen the defence today of the government that it's just a coincidence. And some statistician did the number crunching and worked out the odds were, I'll, I'll pull it mildly, pretty, uh, pretty long. Anyway, go for it. The odds of, uh, so the, yes, this is a story that we've done today with Open Democracy and Sunday Times looking at incredible coincidence. Every senior Tory treasurer for the last 11 years has been offered uh, a peerage, a seat in the House of Lords, except for the most recent one. Um, so it's incredible. It just so happens if you're a Tory treasurer, you get offered a seat in the House of Lords. But that's not the only thing. Every single one of them also hit this magic number of £3 million pounds of donations on or around the time they got offered this seat in the House of Lords. Um, and senior Tories off the record are actually saying, talking about this as openly as this is what the price of a peerage is. Quite remarkably, uh, Michael Farmer, now Lord Farmer, a prominent Tory donor who himself was Tory treasurer and gave over £3 million, uh, has, has described this as a tradition in the Conservative Party for ennobling uh, major donors and uh, treasurers. 
So in the last kind of decades, so as long as the Conservatives have been in power, 22 of their major donors have, have, received, uh, have received seats in the House of Lords. It's worth remembering, this is a legislative body. The House of Lords, it's not like a CBE, it's not like even a knighthood, it's not some gong that you just get from the Queen. This is a chance to make laws, it's a chance to vote in legislation. The chances of a random sample of the British public, and this is what I say as a coincidence, a random sample of the British public getting, being as, as, has, having as many concentration of seats in the House of Lords is the same as winning the national lottery 12 times in a row. So this coincidence, it's a huge coincidence. And really, in many ways, this is just an open secret. This is the reality of British politics, that you can buy access to power. We, the, the own Patterson scandal shows that private companies can buy access to government ministers to MPs. You basically give them, you know, give them a couple of hundred grand and, and you would get access to MPs and ministers uh, who can change policies in the ways that you want. And at the same time, if you're a major donor and you give money to a political party, you can get yourself a seat in the House of Lords. And it's as blatant and as open as that. And privately and off the record, you have senior conservatives just admitting that this is how we bring money into the party. Just going back to Owen Patterson. So Randox, that was his employers, they won this £133 million testing contract. But then the officials learned they didn't have enough equipment, but there was no penalty. So the number 10 did a ring around to get it loaned to them instead. Yeah, it's a quite an incredible story. Again, the Sunday Times today. And the reality is Randox, you know, Randox is a diagnostics company, right? So it's a company that does testing and things like that. Probably loads of people listening to the show have now heard of it because of the COVID pandemic. So it's all over the place. But if you think about it, Owen Patterson's been basically effectively lobbying for them, getting paid almost £100,000 a year for them. They're based in Northern Ireland ever since he was, was sacked as a Northern Ireland secretary about five or six years ago. A good question is, what does Owen Patterson know about diagnostic testing? What's, why would you think that Owen Patterson would be the man that you would hire as a consultant? And it just so happens the other company that Owen Patterson works for, a company called Lynn Country Meats, not, in, not very similar to diagnostics, two very different areas, just also happens to be based in Northern Ireland as well, where Owen Patterson used to be the Secretary of State. And I think that that's, this is exactly the kind of issue you're asking this question. Well, these companies get, then get preferential access to government ministers. And we know this now about Randox. We know that Randox got preferential access to people like Lord Bethel, uh, who was the, um, one of the health ministers who was giving out these huge contracts. One of the issues that we don't know all that much about what he said to Lord Bethel, because Lord Bethel did a lot of communications on his personal mobile phone, and he just seems to have lost it. First it was broken, and then he couldn't find it, and now it just seems to have disappeared altogether. So he can't, uh, he can't divulge his private correspondence with, with uh, companies to award public contracts. So it's all of the same piece as well, Owen. I think that's a really important thing to think about this. Everything from the kind of scandal that Open Democracy has revealed today about how easy it is to buy peerages for Tory donors, to things like Owen Patterson's lobbying, to the COVID contracting. This is all of the same corruption of, of frankly, private money into politics. But at the back of this is a government led by Boris Johnson, that will ride roughshod over just about every regulator and every attempt to at independent standards. And, you know, even his lot kind of joked at the end of, his, of that clip saying, maybe it's because the standards commissioner wants to uh, investigate his trip to Mystique when he brought his then fiance Carrie, to, uh, to a faraway island paid for by, again, by a Tory donor. And the reality is, Boris Johnson is the person, is the MP who's been found to have broken the rules the most in the last few years. He is the one of all of them who's really run roughshod over the standards. And clearly quite, you know, he's quite happy to do so. And will try and take down uh, institutions that try to pull them account as much as he can. It's exactly why we need independent standards. And frankly, you need independent journalism too. 
I mean, just on that, a lot of people obviously were utterly baffled, not least actually some Tory MPs, about why they were expected to march through the voting lobby to save Owen Patterson's skin um, when that would they would suffer a political price for doing so. I mean, just you kind of you sort of went into it there. I mean, this isn't about Owen Patterson per se, is it? This is about Boris Johnson himself fearing for his own fates under the existing rules, perhaps. Very, it's hard not to see it like that. We had the Downing Street flat scandal, which we reported on as well as others, where a Tory donor paid for the refurbishment of uh, of Boris Johnson's number uh, number ten flat, basically that he shares with Carrie Simmons. That's being investigated. And what we've seen more and more like is standards people in standards positions been losing their jobs leaving and been replaced by frankly with lackeys and there was a really interesting piece actually on open democracy on friday uh, by a very well-renowned academic liz david barrett talking about state capture in britain and comparing britain to places like bolsonaro's brazil and hungary's orban uh, under hungary and that might sound quite extreme but it's like liz david barrett is a specialist advisor to the House of Commons Standard Committee. It's a very serious person with a very strong track record in work in this area. And she's somebody who's basically blowing a whistle and saying, look, we have to we have to pay attention to this. And I think it's a really, really, really huge issue. And it goes straight, you know, the fish rots from the head. And it's very hard in Boris Johnson's behaviour, in his long track record, you know, as when he when he was when he stepped down, he kind of flounced out his foreign secretary, the ineffectual foreign secretary. Within three days, he'd signed a contract with the Daily Telegraph for a quarter of a million pounds a year to write a weekly common column, uh, comment column. That should be have passed through the standards watchdog. He didn't bother. He just did it anyway. And at the end of the day, all he gets is a bit of a rap on the knuckles from the standards watchdog. They don't, they're very toothless organisations. But it's quite clear Boris Johnson doesn't even want toothless organisations criticising him. He doesn't want anyone criticising him. Now, it's in the interest of the Tories and a lot of the media to spread this around. And, you know, the Daily Mail last week did a front page, which was actually widely lauded, including by, I suppose, some people who don't like the Daily Mail. But it was quite interesting because it, it made it clear it was politicians who were defending themselves, which is helpful because um, this is obviously a Tory scandal we're talking about. It's about our ruling government. Um, and... There is a general problem in our democracy where voters feel cynical and disengaged, partly because they think all politicians are in it for themselves, their snouts are in the trough. It's very bad for democracy because anyone who's knocked on doors knows how many voters will slam the door in your face and refuse to participate in any form of democracy because of that. And it actually harms often those politicians making bold, transformative um promises because if you're cynical about politicians and their motives then the bigger the promise the more cynical you're likely to be but it's striking is it you know looking at the open democracy um piece that over the last over the over these 11 years other parties have given peerages to donors but not on the same scale so labor's ennobled two major donors and the lib dems five so it is important isn't it to emphasize that that's not to let other political parties off the hook which i don't think anyone could accuse me of doing but this is a Tory-specific scandal that needs to be talked about on those terms, doesn't it? Yeah, I think it does. I was actually chatting to a friend this morning who was asking, did this happen under Blair with, with, with political donors getting seats in the House of Lords? And frankly, it did. We had a cash for honours scandal in 2005. You know, Lord Levy was taken in by the police. He was later released, no, no charges. But, you know, there was a huge whiff about uh, Labour donors going into the House of Lords. But the reality is this is... 
you know, in some ways it's sui generis in terms of the extent of it, but also we're now 11 years into this government. And in some ways kind of just casting our mind back to previous governments and going, well, they did this or they didn't do this, I don't think is in any way helpful. Like we are in so many respects in a new reality, but also it is that thing where you we now have a government that seems really willing to ride roughshod over the rules, whether it's proroguing parliament, you know, to, to force through Brexit, you know, whether it's, you know, just getting the elections bill is a terrible piece of legislation that's going through the Commons at the moment that will make it much harder for third party campaigners to be involved in politics you know whether it's you know the the migration bill the official secrets act or in this case basically just corruption in terms of access to ministers and access to government contracts i think we are really just genuinely in a different space and it's interesting we did some polling with open democracy uh, recently with savanta comrades because we're doing a lot of work on freedom of information and government secrecy because this is the most secretive government ever. We brought out a new report recently that showed there's never been less transparency from government. And we polled voters about this. And we found out actually the Tory voters in particular really did care about this. They were worried about government's transparency. They were worried about government secrecy. So it's not that it's something that voters don't care about, but I do think you're right. There's a real danger that this kind of scene is they're all in it for themselves. And I think that's exactly, in some ways, the attitude and the perspective that might be something that the ruling party wants to bring out of this, that all politicians are equally uh, to blame for this. And it's all like kind of, well, then in that case, you may as well just go for the one who's most overt about this, the most open about it. Whereas actually, what you want is a system that in which this you do not profit from uh, from breaking all the rules and and basically allowing kind of huge large-scale cronyism and clientelism to, to thrive i mean that said and the importance as i said of emphasizing this is a tory scandal this is an open goal for the labor party to argue for reform and actually in the last general election uh obviously that was a terrible result for labor we don't i'm sure people will roll their eyes but the, the, in terms of the policy, some of the policies was a specific policy on banning politicians, MPs, from having second jobs, with exceptions. So, for example, nursing, because actually many people think it's quite important for M- to have some MPs who do frontline public service stuff. Um, it helps make them, you know, understand the communities they represent and serve. Having that experience in the Commons is important. Teaching that kind of thing. I don't think anyone would begrudge MPs. Um, from doing that um but but this would ban that that was the proposal mps from doing the sort of second jobs where they basically can make profit from their public service duties but keir starmer was quite striking the leader obviously the labor party he suggested instead banning shalling ministers from having those roles not mps as a whole but that's much rarer Obviously, many people argue it should be MPs as a whole. And a lot of people think, well, it's because a lot of his own MPs quite like making money from these second jobs. So the Labour Party is not willing to stick to the promise it made, which wasn't popular, by the way, amongst Labour MPs. Um, I mean, what do you think about that? Because that that's one of the proposals. Surely that's just obvious no brainer. I think it is, frankly. We published John Trickett, uh, who's Labour MP, former shadow cabinet minister um, on, on Open Democracy on Thursday, just saying that but we should ban second jobs. And I think you're right. Like there's, there's some MPs who are doctors, who are dentists. I don't think anyone would see anything wrong with professionals going out and doing professional jobs in their constituencies. You know, I think that makes sense. But it's back to that own Patterson question. What are people, what are you buying? 
So for when you're paying Owen Patterson 100 grand a year as a diagnostics company, what are you buying? What, are, what is he consulting you about? What's his expertise in this area? And I think especially around this stuff around consulting, you, know, you can see MPs making serious amounts of money from these kind of jobs where it's just not clear what it is that they're able, what value they can possibly add in this. What can, what can they beyond political connections? And it's not as if MPs don't profit from their political connections eventually anyway. Many of them go out of government and go into really well-paid jobs as, you know, as non-executive directors of companies, as, you know, sits on boards of, of blue chip companies getting significant amounts of money. <laughs> It's the brazenness at times. Sajiv Javid, for example, when he walked out of number 11 as a chancellor back last February, within a couple of weeks, he was getting paid, I think it was about £150,000 a year for Morgan Stanley uh, for consultancy. Well, what could he possibly be consulting on beyond what goes on in the Treasury and what goes on in his former department? Well, that, surely that's a huge conflict of interest. You've got a sitting government minister and a private company who are paying his wages. And I don't, I th again, I think it's that thing for the public. What is the smell test on this? What does it look like? And I think, especially when it comes to consulting and lobbying, I cannot understand why you, we can't just, you know, th there's a really simple solution to this. Otherwise, you end up in these really complicated rules, which is what we have now. And that's what Owen Patterson is dancing on the head of a pin around, whether he approached the minister or the ministers approached him, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas for most people, I think they just ask the question, is this person, is there a good reason why this person would have this job, this second job, if they weren't an MP? And I think if the answer is no, then, uh, then they shouldn't be doing it. And it's not, it's, again, it's, I don't think it's that hard to do. I think it's not that difficult to find ways and means to do that, that allow some MPs to take on roles like professional roles, like working in a hospital, doing shifts. We can understand why that happens. But they're not able to, like, you know, consult an airline company for three grand an hour. Just finally, in terms of general proposals for reform, I mean, you've mentioned other aspects too. So we've talked about, donors getting dirges we've spoken about obviously mps having second jobs and you've also alluded to the, what people call the revolving door where you get mps and ministers who end up i mean i'll give you an example actually it was a labor example jeff hoon who was the defense secretary um in, in the new labor period gave, gave a contract to a helicopter company and then ends up working for the helicopter company you know i mean it's it, you know it, that revolving door is endemic. It's not just MPs as well. You get civil servants as well. So you get, you know, public, their, their careers funded by the public purse. Uh, they obviously get understanding and knowledge of how government works. And then private companies can exploit that to win influence by appointing them to various positions. And also, let's be honest, MPs then know in the future that they could have a profitable future and that will help influence the decisions that they make as MPs and ministers. So what are the general package of reforms you think we should be talking about and any other areas you think which show how our system has been corrupted? Well, just it's, if you think about it, just, it's quite amazing Owen, that we've had this conversation for 20 minutes and we haven't even mentioned David Cameron and David Cameron's lobbying scandal because it, it almost feels like something that happened so long ago. We've just had such a huge extent of it. And if you think back, this is David Cameron lobbying for this private company, Greensill, in which he stood to make tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions, if it floated. You know, a company that he, he 
brought into government as prime minister and then look set to profit from massively and was lobbying on their behalf and if you remember that scandal is only six months ago and um, when that happened there was parliamentary commissions and inquiries from the public administration uh, committee lots of noise about how we're going to reform lobbying laws to stop this kind of lobbying because david cameron wasn't even registered as a lobbyist because he worked in-house for this company due to these crazy rules we have and um, what's happened nothing We've not had any change. There's loads of things we could do to stop this. You know, whether it's getting rid of second jobs, whether it's, you know, it's getting rid of uh, the current lobbying laws and bringing in some proper lobbying laws. Frankly, whether it's looking at how we fund political parties, you know, it's not very palatable, but state funding political parties would do a lot to take out some of this huge influence of, of money in our politics. And this is, you know, it's it's a small amount of money, but has huge impacts that can be incredibly effective if you spend it. So there's so many things we could do uh, to deal with it. But actually, at the end of this week, what we're ending up doing is having to breathe a sigh of relief because the weak rules and the weak standards processes we have haven't been completely shoveled over the side of a cliff by Boris Johnson. Great stuff, Peter. And, and I should say as well, we, we did a we did a show on Greensill. So be, people do check it out because it's still on YouTube. And we did it with the journalists themselves who exposed the scandal at the Sunday Times and the Financial Times. They d- did all of the brilliant investigative work on that. So it's still on, on YouTube or the podcast. So do check that out. But Peter, thank you so much for that. And it's so important, as I said, you made a very important point at the beginning, which is the crucial importance of independent investigative journalism of the sort that open democracy uh, does so people it's very important people check out open democracy and support open democracy is there anything specifically they can do actually just on that they can well yeah if you go on to our website www.opendemocracy.net uh, forward slash donate you can donate to support our work we really do rely a lot on small donors uh, giving us small amounts of money monthly to be able to do the work that we do and so it's a huge thanks to everyone who does support it and yeah, any, anything anyone can do to help us it does make a difference because we've you know we've we've discovered over the last few years that there's a hell of a lot of this work that needs doing and there's a lot more that needs to be done Great stuff, Peter. Well, honestly, we really appreciate it on a Sunday, uh, you taking your time out to speak to us. So thank you so, so much for doing that. And uh, do follow Peter on social media. I, you're gonna, I'll just pronounce, I'll just expel, because <laughs> I had a panic before we came on, which I did last time I had Peter, about how to pronounce the name, which is Gagan. But it sounds easy to uh, spell when it isn't. It's G-E-O-G-H-E-G-A-N. So do look him up on Twitter and you can see his work being shared there. So cheers, Peter. Speak to you soon. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Owen. Have a great Sunday. You as well. You as well. Um, before I bring in our next fantastic guest, just just quickly on that, um, I hate to be that guy plugging my, it's very old now, 2014, the establishment. A lot's happened since then. One of the points I was interested, though, in that book was about how the establishment was bound together by an ideology which justified its self-interest. And I, I use this, I tried to sum up that ideology with the L'Oreal slogan, because I'm worth it. And what I meant by that was how politics had been transformed from the sense of being a public service and a duty, not to be rose tinted about it, obviously money has always corrupted politics in various different ways, but that sense of politics as a public service, as Thatcherism obviously triumphed and profit became king in every sphere of life, MPs saw uh, their private sector counterparts with ever more booming salaries, huge amounts of money, 
partly enabled by their own policies, and they felt to themselves entitled to a slice of that pie. Now, MPs' salaries, a backbencher, puts them in the top 3% of earners in the country, but they look at City whiz kids and all the rest of it and thought, well, why can't I have some of that as well? And that's why many of them saw politics as a springboard in order to profit from their own public service. Um, so I just think that's interesting because that ideology obviously is very much associated with the Tories, but under new Labour, it affected how Labour approached things as well. Um, now I'm going to bring in the next fantastic guest and really chuffed to have uh, Patrick Harvey, who is a Scottish um, member of the Scottish Parliament, obviously, um, for the Green Party. Uh, hey, Patrick, how you doing? I'm well, how are you? Thanks for having me on. It's an honour, it's an honour. So um, I want to talk to you, obviously, about COP26, uh, which is ongoing. Oh, yeah, um, that's been happening, hasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, you noticed. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that thing. Um, now, before, what I'm going to do is I'll just play a clip of Greta Thunberg, who did a speech at COP26. So let's just see what Greta Thunberg had to say. Inside COP, they're just politicians and people in power pretending to take our future seriously, to, pretending to take the present seriously, the people who are being affected already today by the climate crisis. Change is not going to come from inside there. That is not leadership. This is leadership. This is what leadership looks like. We say no more blah, blah, blah. No more exploitation of people and nature and the planet. No more exploitation. No more blah, blah, blah. No more whatever the fuck they're doing inside there. We're sick and tired of it and we're going to make the change, whether they like it or not. They have been keep on going for too long. We're not going to let them get away anymore. That's pretty pretty damning from Greta Thunberg. How much do you, what do you think about that, Patrick, in terms of, obviously COP26 is happening up in Scotland, Uh, you are a Scottish MP, MSP, obviously. What's your sense, and as as a green MSP, the environment, climate emergency is quite high up your list of priorities. do, do Do you agree, Greta? Yeah, I absolutely agree with the the sentiment in that that the the leadership that we've seen from the the youth climate movement is extraordinary. I think it's something we should be incredibly grateful for. Actually, the the generation that Greta Thunberg and so many others are, are speaking for has a right to feel deeply angry, deeply betrayed uh, by the the decades of inaction since the alarm bells started to ring. Uh, you know, we've not seen the, the, the transformation that was necessary. Uh, just before COVID hit, I've, I've reflected on this quite a few times, actually. Just before COVID hit in, in this country, I was invited along to one of the Fridays for Future demos in, in George Square in Glasgow, and I was invited to, to speak. And my mum was in the crowd, actually. Now, she was an environmental and green activist decades ago when those first alarm bells were starting to to ring. She's 18 now. And so you had these three generations of angry, impatient people recognizing that if the world had taken action uh, in my in my mother's uh, activist days when 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 she was first campaigning on this the changes we need to make would have been slow and calm and easy and probably a lot cheaper and the only reason that we're now in what everyone's calling uh, a climate and nature emergency uh, is that the world didn't take action i think in relation to cop 
we need to recognize it as a deeply flawed process. It always has been. It has always given platform and voice uh, to some of those who've caused the most of the, the problem, both rich developed countries with a huge historic uh, carbon emission uh, like the UK, but also the corporations uh, who are dragging their feet or blocking progress or even undermining uh, research by funding and, and creating a climate denial movement. We're now at the point where that climate denial movement is not dead yet, but nearly. I think it's 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 far more diminished than it was uh, five, ten years ago. Um, but also within COP, you've got uh, not enough voice or platform for the marginalised, for the people who are experiencing the effects of of climate change, both in terms of the, those countries and those marginalised people. So it is always it always has been a flawed process. That does not mean it can't achieve anything. And the I think the the, the real appeal that I would have to people uh, is not to diminish the anger, not to silence those criticisms of COP as a process, but also not to give up on it as something that can achieve what we need to, because this is not about winning versus losing. This is about how badly are we losing? We are already decades behind the curve uh, on preventing the harm of the, of the destruction of, of not just the climate, but our wider ecosystem. People are already living with that harm. Every action that we take to limit global heating uh, and to allow nature to restore will reduce the scale of the harm that's being done, the harm that's going to be felt. So, you know, if we limit to 1.8 degrees, 1.5 degrees, that is still damage that we have done. It should not have happened. But if we achieve those limits, if we achieve those reductions that need to be uh, achieved to, to reduce global heating, we will save significant numbers, uh, vast numbers of lives, not just of, of human beings, but of other species as well. So don't give in to complacency. Absolutely. Especially if at the end of next week, they're all waving a, a deal and saying, look, we've, we've done it. We've got something fantastic. Don't give in to complacency, but also don't give in to defeatism because COP is flawed, but whatever the deal is or isn't, our job is the same. It's to achieve those emissions cuts, to do it fast and to do it fair and to invest in letting nature restore itself. What particularly has given you hope coming out of COP26? Hope. Um, hope is really hard work these days. I you know, know being, being hopeful is is not something that comes comes easily. When you look at the state of the world, you look at the state of our politics. I mean, the 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 fact that you've got that younger generation who are not giving up, uh, who are not resigned to having their future destroyed, who are angry but they're channeling that anger uh, into demanding change, not just change in terms of CO two parts per million, but recognizing that this requires economic and social and political change. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful that, that young people of that generation are not giving up, are not just turning their, their sense of anger uh, into something destructive, but they're channeling it into something really powerful. Um, it's, um, I, I, I think, I think it, it, it is hard to, to see that we're going to have an outcome that, that everybody can just be cheering about and, and delighted about. It, it is, as I say, about how badly are we losing. There is no there is no single fix that can say, well, climate, that's fixed, tick, let's move on to the next thing. This is going to define people's lives for decades, for generations. In fact, you know, for the long term, the transformation of our society, if we can achieve it, has to be permanent. Uh, it has to be something that, that, that challenges 
uh, all of human existence from now on if we're, if we're going to have one. Um, but the, the possibility is there that we can achieve a sustainable future and end the, the power of the, the economic systems that have brought us to the brink of crisis. Just a couple of final things. Tad Campwell asks what you think about real rewilding uh, royal land in Scotland. So a very specific question. But but as well as that, linked to it, what are the kind of key whatever happens in the come in, in terms of next week, what are the key demands that we need to be placing? Um or people need to be these movements you talk about, particularly the younger movements, what are the key demands you'd like to see people united around, as well as obviously that answering rewilding? Well, the, the land reform question is is part of there as well as rewilding, uh, because the, the question was focused on on royal land. You know, I would love to see uh, the the principle, the longstanding principle uh, in Scottish uh, legal tradition that, that the land belongs to the people. Uh, I would love to see that uh, followed through. And we have commitments on uh, continuing the land reform agenda. Um, you know, whether whether we still have a, a, a royal family or not, or in my view, if, if Scotland gets to, to choose its, its own elected head of state, what, whatever the, 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 the status of, of the royal family there, we need radical land reform because we have huge amounts of land held by small numbers of, of people, very small numbers of people with huge estates, and it's not being used in a way that's either economically productive for communities or ecologically productive. So yeah, we absolutely need to invest in, in rewilding uh, and allow nature to recover. Just yesterday, I was co-launching with the First Minister a Nature Recovery Fund uh, that's part of the, the deal that's brought the Greens into government in Scotland. And that's going to be a multi-year fund for the first time so that we can really invest uh, in rewilding and, and nature recovery in, in urban as well as rural parts. But we've got a very, very long way to go uh, on that. As for the the the, the outcome next week, uh, as I say, you know, the, there's, a, there's a real danger that we get something that looks good in the press, creates a, a good headline and feels kind of positive, but that leads to complacency, not among activists or climate experts, but among the wider public uh, who need to be engaged with, with this uh, agenda. There's a danger that people think, oh, well, that's, that's sorted then. And the flip side, there's a danger that people get into defeatism. We need to avoid that. In policy terms, you know, the world has to be serious about giving up oil and gas. And finally, we're starting to get movement in the Scottish political landscape on that. You know, it's, it's, it's barely more than a few months, really, since every political party other than the Greens was committed to maximum economic extraction. That's the policy of trying to get as much oil and gas out of the North Sea uh, as we possibly can. Now it's only the Tories who are isolated uh, in holding on to that idea that you can continue business as usual with the oil and gas industry uh, while still taking climate seriously. Just the other day, Nicola Sturgeon said words that I don't think I would have heard a first minister from the SNP saying. She said, I promise you, we will accelerate as far and as fast as we can the transition away from fossil fuels. In Scotland's case, that's oil and gas. Now, I know talk is cheap, and we have a job and everybody has a job of holding the First Minister and the government to account on that. But that is a, a dramatic shift in position in relation to the oil and gas industry from the party that once said it's Scotland's oil uh, and pretended that we could continue that, that industry for the long term. We now have a recognition that renewables are the future of Scotland's energy system uh, and that the fossil fuel industry is on its way out. The whole world needs to wake up to, to that agenda in the way that the you know, even the International Energy Agency is now saying no new fossil fuel extraction. That's not compatible 
with a, a serious response on, on climate. So we've got a, a sea change in terms of the rhetoric, but it needs to be followed through uh, in terms of the, the, the scaling down, the winding down of that industry, not just adding some more climate finance into renewables, but shifting it away from the industries that are, that are destroying our, our life support system. Patrick, an eloquent and passionate um, campaigner for taking on the climate emergency as ever. Thank you so much for that. Really, really do appreciate it. And fingers crossed uh, for the coming days and beyond. And do follow Patrick Harvey, it's Patrick Harvey IE um, on uh, Twitter, and you will be able to see many of his fantastic tweets on issues like this. Uh, Thanks, Owen. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it, Patrick. Take care of yourself. Have a great Sunday. Speak soon. And you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Now, before I bring in our final two fantastic guests, um, this is something we've spoken about on the show before, and it is so important. There is a vicious and never-ending and often escalating campaign against trans people in this country, one of the most marginalized minorities that we have. A minority which faces a more than fourfold increase in hate crimes over the last few years, where statistics show there is a crisis in mental health uh, because of the transphobia, which is so rampant in British society, that many trans people feel scared simply doing things which uh, cis, that's people whose gender identity accords with that assigned at birth, uh, take for granted. Leaving home, going to work, not being judged and bullied by your colleagues. And many trans people report being bullied at work, in school, in their community, fearing using public toilets. Now, the British media, the vast majority of the British media, have been complicit in whipping up this moral panic, which is comparable to the anti-gay moral panic of the 1980s. In the 1980s, gay people were portrayed as, and beyond, and still, but this is very a mainstream opinion in the 80s and 90s, gay people are sexual predators, threats to children, attempting to recruit children. Uh, they can't reproduce, so they have to recruit, as the slogan went. That helped underpin Section 28, the first homophobic legislation introduced in this country for about three centuries in the late 80s. Um, biology is destiny. Uh, God made Adam and Eve, he didn't make Adam and Steve. That same trope is, of course, applied to trans people today. 
why should the majority have to redefine themselves because of a tiny minority? I mean, we could go on. It's the same thing. Defined by mental illness, the World Health Organization only removed homosexuality as mental illness in the early 90s. Uh, and the same, um, of course, applied to trans people. Now, the BBC uh, last week uh, did an article which was directly whipping up bigotry against trans people. It says, we're being pressured into sex by some trans women. And it was it was an article uh, supposedly about lesbians who were being pressured into sex by some trans women. Now, it, in many ways, just a bizarre article, by the way. Um, it, it, one BBC staff member said it was like a medium post, not to begrudge, by the way, medium post. That's a blogging website. But it didn't even seem to accord to the general writing house style um, of the BBC. Um, the whole basis of it was utterly bigoted. Imagine an article uh, saying, um, we straight people are being pressured into sex by some gay people, and then using some examples. I mean, you could use examples, by the way. There was a serial gay rapist who was imprisoned at the beginning of last year um, after uh, potentially raping dozens or more straight men having drugged them. But no one said, well, that just shows what gay male culture is all about, and this is a gay male culture issue. So there's actually more evidence if you wish to use that bigoted narrative. Um, Obviously, everyone would see that as, as uh, for what it is. Now, it used a Twitter poll based on 80 people, a Twitter poll. I mean, goodness grief, have some basic self-respect using that in journalism. What a joke. A, a Twitter poll of an anti-trans group to justify the claim that lesbians would be pressured into sex by uh, trans women. Um, the examples used, some of them, again, utterly bizarre conflation. One of them, and by the way, I should just content warning, because I'm going to say before I bring in our team, really, yes, this is grim. This is really grim stuff. It's nasty. It's vicious. And it's very unpleasant. Um, one example was a lesbian who was in a relationship with a bisexual woman. And the bisexual woman um, wanted to have sex, a threesome with a trans woman. And the lesbian didn't. So they didn't have sex with it. I mean, trans woman wasn't even part of this. I mean, what that conversation. And apparently the lesbian said that the bisexual, her partner accused her of transphobia. What does that have to do with the trans person? Not even, not even in the conversation. So that was just thrown in with accusations of sexual assault. I mean, you know, as if that has anything to do with it. Now it gets a lot, a lot worse. Um, I should, uh, I should say before this came out, actually, it triggered complaints. There was a, a huge number of complaints. An open letter was signed now by 20,000 people for an apology over the trans article. But it gets worse. Lily Cade was the named source, a named source talking about her experiences. Now, she, uh, um, you can see here, engaged after the article in essentially genocidal rhetoric against trans people, calling for them to be lynched. Uh, murdered in, I mean, just literally, I don't want to say what she said, but all I'll say is it was genocidal rhetoric, essentially calling for the mass lynching and shooting of trans people. Now, Lily Cade, as it turned out, has been accused of multiple, multiple sexual assaults. And I've spoken to some of survivors and people who know Lily Cade, horrific, multiple sexual assaults. Now, the murderous rants came after the articles. You might think, well, you know, to, what, what a surprise. An article such as that used sources where, what, where, who were completely full of hateful bigotry towards trans people. What a shock and horror. But they came afterwards. The sexual assaults were on public, the alleged sexual assaults, public record. And I say alleged, she confessed to them, by the way, so we can drop that. Um, now, the journalist was told about them but didn't include them because she decided it wasn't relevant. 
What on earth? An article trying to portray trans women as sexual predators, and one of the main sources to, to claim that was a sexual predator herself. An actual sexual predator with multiple victims. Now, the article then, they, the BBC defended the process, by the way. I mean, it's such a joke. They, they got all these complaints, and they said the article was carefully considered before publication, went through a rigorous editorial review process, and fully complies with the BBC's editorial guidelines and standards. Well, if that's the case, why did they then have to amend the article? So they amended the article. Uh, this The Guardian, um, belatedly, one of the only newspapers who covered it in the end. We'll talk about that, though. Um, but they changed the online article um, a bit, uh, and, and amended it. So obviously it wasn't rigorous. How can anyone trust BBC journalism? If that was their rigorous process, when it's public record about these numerous sexual assaults and the journalists were told about them in, 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 uh, in, in advance, why is the article still up? I mean, the fact it was largely based on the only evidence to back it up, statistical, was a Twitter poll about an anti-trans organisation. Now, this has caused huge anger amongst BBC staff, many of whom I've spoken to. Uh, young BBC staff uh, have been in revolt against management. There's also been a protest outside BBC, the BBC. May Martin, um, the brilliant non-binary comedian, um, you may have seen her in Feel Good, uh, was one of those who attended. Now, that's enough for me because uh, we're going to bring in our two brilliant guests, Roz Cavani and Ugla uh, Stefania. Uh, Roz, who is a very long-standing uh, writer with a bookshelf for those who are listening on the podcast, which looks like it's going to fall all over her any moment. I'd say that is a health and safety issue. So it's important we flag this up on the show. We take the big issues very seriously, including health and safety. But it's a big honour to have Roz. And Ugla Stefania, who is a brilliant journalist, does video, videos, a whole range of different hats, I would say. Great to see you both. How are you doing? Fine. Yeah, good to be here. Firstly, I just want your reaction to, just your general reaction, just your general set of thoughts. Who wants to go first? Do you want to kick off with Blair? Just your general thoughts about what's, you know, because obviously this is a long, this is a campaign against trans people that goes back a very long time. Yeah. How do you feel? How do you feel in the aftermath of all this? I mean, it's just, I've been thinking about it a lot and I've been thinking about how something like this can just happen in a, state-funded broadcast that this is published on you know someone that's supposed to be a really respected platform where with news you're supposed to be able to trust and the more i think about it the more ridiculous it seems and you know when you were describing it i just found myself laughing at it because it's so utterly ridiculous it's just just really really bizarre and you know I've, I've been thinking about as a columnist and as a journalist if i were to write an article and i were to suggest that we would use a twitter poll of 80 people my editors would laugh in my face and they would say, you can't do that. That's not acceptable. So I just don't understand how in the first place this can even become an article. And, um, and I've sort of been reading about how it came about and apparently it's been taking over a year for the article to get published. So it, it has been going back and forth and it's been a long, you know, long thing coming. And, and it just seems to me that it's so desperate and there's such desperation in it. And there's some sort of a, a desperate attempt to make trans people look bad and they don't really seem to care what they have to compromise to do that and to me that doesn't just question the bbc's stance on on trans rights or lgbt rights but on everything else if they're compromising their editorial standards on this 
what else are they compromising their editorial standards on? And what can we really trust? Because this reflects on the BBC as a whole. It's not just about trans people anymore. This is about the BBC as a whole, because if they're wavering their standards so blatantly, what else can we really trust? Ross? I mean, one of the really worrying things uh, is the international dimension of this report, because it's in Portuguese on the Brazilian BBC website without any of the cuts that have subsequently been made. So all of the stuff where Lily Cade makes direct accusations of sexual assault is still on there in Portuguese. Now, those people who don't know need to be told that in Brazil, there are a couple of hundred murders of trans women every year. So the BBC are actually actively inciting harm. And that's really shocking. More generally, I think the, the whole point about this is that it's, it's saying the quiet stuff out loud. Because if you look at, for example, the quote, women's human rights campaign front organization, if you look at their evidence to parliament, it will use weasel words like putting an end to the practice of transgenderism. And this goes back decades. Um, Janice Raymond, uh, back in 1980, said, transsexuality must be morally mandated out of existence. There's always been this strain of violent quasi-fascist pseudo-feminism, which is called for the removal of trans people, or as trans people, of course, they let us live, according to some definition of life, but they want us gone. And that's the basic issue. It's not just this article or that article. It's the fact that there is a significant group of people who want trans people, genderqueer people, not to exist anymore. And I think that's quite scary because that's if you look at the states where the Republicans have made trans people's rights a political issue that they thought at various points were going to win them local elections, it's completely involved with racism. It's completely involved with, and the same politicians are attacking reproductive freedom. If you look at the quote, intellectual right, people like the eco-fascist Mary Harrington. If you look at the vein of right-wing thought that's not even conservative, that um, we need to reduce the surplus population of the world, particularly brown ones. There's transphobia is a running thread in that. And it's quite shocking that all of the old bigotries are emerging. There are conspiracy theories that blame the, the existence of trans rights on rich Jewish billionaires. Often that people will say, oh, well, we, we didn't notice that the billionaires were accusing of this, they're all Jews. Uh, George Soros, for example, George Soros. George Soros, they'll, they'll accuse George Soros, they'll accuse 
well, who has no particular interest in the subject at all, except he believes in LGBT rights as part of his general human rights campaign. They accuse um, Martin Rothblatt, who is a computer scientist with interest in satellite technology, who is rich and trans and Jewish, and has not actually had any great role in trans affairs, but because she looks like um, a possible conspirator, she gets dragged in. There's uh, the really worrying thing is that a lot of that there are particular theoreticians in the States, a woman called Jennifer Bilek, who, uh, who gets positive mention from people who you would never expect to be in cahoots with someone like that. Yet at the same time, she's much loved by American Nazis. I've written to, for example, Catherine Viner at The Guardian and said, not asking you to change your anti-trans stance, but aren't you a bit worried about the permeation of anti-trans politics by anti-Semitic conspiracy theories? And she said, oh, she didn't know about that. So I sent her a link to the research demonstrating this. And she acknowledged receipt of my letter. And that was the last I heard from her. It's quite disturbing that conspiracy theories get mentioned. Helen Joyce, in her anti-trans book, refers to the billionaires funding the trans movement. You go, what? I mean, trans people are poor. Trans people are very poor. Um, I'm one of the more high-profile trans people in the country in some ways because I'm a published poet. I live on, I'm poor as a church mouse. Where's my check from George Soros? Yeah. It's ridiculous. Okay. And yet this stuff is mainstream mm -hmm. from people in the press who talk about the powerful trans lobby. What mm -hmm. powerful trans lobby? Uh, me and a couple of my mates occasionally getting, getting articles in the press is a powerful trans lobby. Mm -hmm. It's ridiculous. And they, they said this, of course, about the so-called gay, gay lobby. Bugler, um, in terms of this BBC article specifically, what does it say? As I said, I mean, imagine an article. Well, here's an example. So we had Lily Cade, who is a uh, lesbian um, who who is accused of serial, serious sexual assault against other lesbians. Um, but imagine there was an article based on her extrapolating about lesbian sexual predators. I mean, everyone would just see it for what it is. And actually, looking back, people forget this. There's a long history of lesbians being portrayed as sexual predators. I mean, it's, I read some disturbing, fascinating literature about the way the US Navy and so on spoke about alleged lesbianism. I mean, you could, of course, everyone would just see that as bigotry. So what does it say about that, that, that as an example? And the fact that this article was shared by many mainstream people within the British media, none of whom, as far as I can see, have attracted it, their support for it, and almost no media outlets have covered it. Yeah, it's 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 actually quite shocking, and it seems as if the UK doesn't learn anything from it. 
Trans history because this isn't the first time an LGBT group is being demonized by the mainstream media. I mean, Section 28 was largely driven as well by the mainstream media and the whole sort of sentiment around gay people being a threat to, to everyone. And, and the same arguments now that, you know, we're a threat to, to children or we're sexual predators or we're pressuring people into doing things. It's, it's exactly the same rhetoric just being recycled. And I think it's actually really telling that these people all claim to be fighting against sexual abuse and they're fighting, you know, against violence against women. But then they will willingly quote someone that's, you know, attacked multiple women sexually. It's, it just shows that that's not really what it's about. You know, if, if it was really about eradicating sexual abuse and it was about making sure that shelters and women refugees were safe and stuff, they would be, you know, raising money for that. They would be actually raising awareness of these things. But most of these people have probably never even stepped into a center or even helped them. And whereas a lot of trans people know exactly what it's like to, to, you know, either work in these centers or seeking services there themselves. And it's just, it's completely out of touch with reality, I think. And it really shows us how little the British public and the British media really knows about trans people and how little they really know about the lives we lead and, and what we do. And, um, and this is reflected in research. Um, All About Trans did a research um, a couple of years ago where they sort of asked public opinion about trans people. They just got random people across the country and asked them about their views about trans people. And what actually was revealed is that people had such a basic understanding of what it means to be trans and had all of the, the sort of same misconceptions that we've been fighting against for decades. So it seems that we're still at such a starting point with understanding trans people that, for example, when the BBC publishes an article like that, someone in their house somewhere in the middle of the country that has never engaged with trans people knowingly doesn't have the tools or the capabilities to question it. And I think that is the most dangerous thing, that most people aren't around trans people or don't talk about these issues or they don't knowingly know a trans person. So what they see on the news, they take it as truth and they don't question it in the same way that they perhaps should. And this is this is a problem with the British media in general. There's a lot of, of misconceptions and a lot of things that aren't done as rigorously as they should be. And um, and I noticed this quite particularly because um, I'm from Iceland originally. And um, in Iceland, we don't have this same sort of really toxic, almost vindictive, argumentative media climate where people are pitted against each other and, and all views are seen as legitimate. Because in, in the UK, if anybody is against trans people, they're put on TV. And it's just... It's just really, really shocking that there isn't a more rigorous process of, of who gets to speak and, and what is actually behind their views. Um, because when I talk about trans issues in Iceland, it's quite reasonable. If I bring forward an argument and say, well, actually, this, is, this isn't true or this is based on that, it isn't met with the same hostility and the same argumentative sort of cherry picking or taking things out of context, which happens all the time in the UK. So it, it's quite interesting to compare the two and to see how blatant it is, really. I mean, Ros, in yes. terms of... Oh, go, go, sorry. I was going to... Wait, go, 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 go. I mean, one of the interesting aspects of the, of, the rec of the crisis of the last four years is that much of the time, the press has misrepresented what the legal position actually is. Uh, people have confused two entirely separate laws on trans rights, the Gender Recognition Act and our inclusion in the Equalities Act, as if people's right to use, for example, toilets 
depended on whether we had a gender recognition certificate. These are, you know, there's been very clear blue water between the two pieces of law, yet important media commentators, trade union officials who run anti-trans groups like Women's Place have deliberately gone on misrepresenting the law. Absolutely beyond a question. People have been directly challenged on this and go on doing it. Mm. it there have been various court cases where uh, interpretations of the Equalities Act have been challenged and the judge has thrown them out as obvious nonsense. Yet that proceeding, those proceedings have had no coverage in the mainstream press, whereas a, bar a transphobic barrister's opinion that Stonewall and the EHRC had got the law wrong, got lots of coverage, even though two weeks after it came out from a, bar a single barrister who Essex University consulted, the High Court threw exactly that point out with ignominy and ridicule. Mm. It's a deliberate campaign to mi misrepresent our legal rights as a prelude to removing our rights. And everyone should be worried about that. Because the idea that people's legally guaranteed rights can be removed by a press hate campaign should be concern of concern to every single minority in the country. On, I'm interested in, in terms of, I'm interested in both of what you think about in terms of what's driving kind of structurally driving a lot of this, this, as you say, vicious campaign, particularly in the last four years. And I think that's, that's a very important point. And, and it's true, obviously, I think you'd maybe expect the right-wing media in this country, which Ugler points out, we have one of the most aggressively right-wing media ecosystems in the Western world. And much of the tabloid media in this country relishes demonizing and taking on minorities. That's not a new thing. Refugees, Muslims, gay people, obviously, traditionally. Um, black people for a long time. A lot of them were very anti-Semitic in the past. But what I'm interested in is, I suppose, you know, having spoken to, for example, younger BBC journalists, and it is, and this is in other media organisations the same as well, uh, there's a generational divide. It's not exact. There are older allies of trans people and the younger people who are not good on trans rights. But in general, there is definitely a very acute generational dimension. And the point that many trans allies have told me at the BBC is within the organization, a lot of what exists is kind of indifference and ignorance about trans people. Most people don't know any, knowingly know any trans people. Um, and there is a so-called gender critical movement, which is how this faction, the anti-trans rights faction have styled themselves to give themselves an intellectual veneer, um, who are very well connected and obsessive I mean, if you look at, if an asteroid hit the Earth, they would still be talking about this and nothing else. And that gives them a big advantage because trans people have other things to take care about other than constantly debating their existence. These people, that's all they want to talk about often. It's bizarre, profound radicalization. But they basically, within the BBC, are just kind of get the runnings because they kind of got, they're well connected with very senior people. Uh, they're, because they're older, they're more likely to be closer to senior management positions or know people in senior management positions. Younger people are less likely and also feel often more insecure in their jobs. Um, and, you know, there's a sense that the anti-trans faction on the BBC, they can just, they will tweet stuff openly and other people who are supportive fear that they will be reprimanded if they support trans rights. 
So what do you think? I mean, start with you, Moss. What do you think is driving this, the coverage? Because there are two elements, aren't they? There's the right-wing anti-minority tradition, which is a big problem. But the so-called gender-critical movement, and these are people who often see themselves as progressives, as feminists, or something else, and they've allied with the right. I mean, when they, you know, they will share Douglas Murray articles uh, attacking trans people. They will share, they write in the Daily Mail, they write in right-wing rags like The Spectator. They brief against Guardian people in The Spectator and Guido Fawkes. But they see themselves as progressive. So what, what do you think is driving this coverage? Um, I mean, I think it just... Oh, sorry. Oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, I just think it, it sort of goes to show that that bigotry can really blur the line between people's morals and people's principles in, in a sense that, you know, it doesn't matter how liberal you think you are, you can still be subjected to, to prejudice and you can become prey to it. And I think, I think this obsession that they have is in particular a really clear characteristic that there's something wrong and that there's something going on here because it is completely almost pathologically obsessive you know they will go on on social media and they will go on and they will completely harass and stalk people and they will take pictures of people and they will pick apart their parents and they will accuse cis allies of being trans because they don't look female enough and you know they just they just go on these crazy rants where they just completely reveal themselves as completely pathologically obsessive like honestly it's 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 a serious serious thing where they just go on forever and i think it's quite interesting that they call themselves gender critical because when we talk about movements that are quite you know prejudiced we have race critical movement which is basically a racist movement and then we have the gender critical movement which is basically a transphobic it's it's just it's it's almost like they're describing the opposite and it just becomes quite quite comical i think that they reveal themselves as critical when in fact they are aligning with very non-critical and far-right forces. And as you say, they're happy to write for them. They're happy to, to be hosted by them for events. And they're happy to do everything with them as long as they agree with them. And there was a great article by um, Judith Butler um, in The Guardian, actually, um, which was, actually has a bit of a history because she, she was in an interview in The Guardian where she compared um, this gender-critical movement to fascism and said that this is actually based on a fascist rhetoric. This was later on removed from the article in The Guardian, and there was no proper explanation as to why, even if people complained and, and asked why this happened. But then she was actually, um, she wrote an article um, later on where basically said the same thing, and that was actually published. And it was a great article where, where Judith Butler sort of goes into this idea of this gender, anti-gender movement and, and, and what that means and how that is is across Europe and, and across the world, really, this sort of really sort of anti-trans, anti-LGBT movement, which we're seeing in, for example, in Hungary and in Poland mm -hmm. and in countries around us here in Europe where LGBT people are, are being prosecuted and laws are being stripped away and so on. And, and, and in this article, Judith Butler just really sort of lists quite clearly what these movements fight for and then quite clearly connects it to exactly what this gender critical movement is doing. Um, and it just reveals it quite clearly how it's really just found in exactly the same rhetoric. Just because they, they call it something else and they try to portray it in a different way, it's always the same arguments. And I think that's the, the more insidious thing about it is that they, they sort of recycle these arguments and they change them slightly and they make it seem as if the problem is male violence. And male violence is a huge problem. 
in our society. And we all know that. And there's research upon research upon research which shows us that violence against women and minorities is, is, is a real issue. And I think that's somehow how they've managed to justify it to themselves and to others that they're actually fighting against this really prominent problem which has been established. And that's sort of the shield that they, they use um, when discussing this. And they've sort of created this narrative that it's that it's women's rights against trans rights and that women's rights will be infringed upon if trans people will continue their trade and this will make women more vulnerable to abuse. Um, but this completely, of course, ignores the fact that trans people are really, really vulnerable to the very same abuse themselves um, and that trans people aren't shown in any type of research, any type of, of journalism to be a threat. Actually, it's the opposite, that they are even more likely to be um, victims of sexual abuse and male violence themselves. And, you know, every trans person I know can, can attest to this. And any any person that's actually worked in the women's rights movement or worked in, in the women's aid sector will also know this. Um, and as a person myself who's worked in a, in a center for survivors of sexual abuse, it's, it's, it's really, really important that people realize how these centers work because it's often conflated that just anybody can walk into a center and they can get a room and then they can just start abusing women in the center but that's just not how these how these centers operate and, and it's it's just not how how life works and i think that's what they do a lot they sort of take things and they conflate them and they make things seem as if they aren't and i think male violence and, and abuse has become their justification and I think for a lot of them, they think they're doing good because they think they're fighting against male violence and they have no understanding that a cis man and a trans woman are completely different people with di completely different life experiences. But for people who don't know anything about trans people, it's easy for them to conflate it because it's always in the news that and where they're compared to it or where it's basically shown as the same thing, even if they might use different words. And, and I think that's what they do. They insidiously and quite quietly and quite subtly plant the seeds that these are the takes two same people um, whereas the reality is of course much more complex than that. Ross, the really worrying thing is the way that some people who used to be to some degree trans allies have for quite bizarre reasons become part of the anti-trans movement. I'm thinking of, of various journalists that I've known personally for years, who partly because they wanted to get along, partly because they'd had the odd bit, bit of millennials being critical of them on social media, suddenly go into strange rants and stop taking phone calls when you call them. and. It's very significant that we're in a situation where a lot of people have over the last half decade and more moved steadily to the right in response to the rightward drift of politics. Uh, you had the, to, to, to link it to other things, a lot of the same people uh, came out with bizarre rants about Jeremy Corbyn. I mean, I'm, as you know, I was never an, an uncritical supporter of Corbyn, but it was very noticeable that some of the most bizarre accusations against him were coming from people who regard themselves as 
or used to regard themselves as of the left, but just didn't want to go along with young people. A lot of it is generational. There's also two other factors. One is that in the States, after the Christian right lost on equal marriage, they made a concerted decision at the Family Research Council's annual convention and other conservative think tanks to go after trans people as the vulnerable bit of the progressive coalition. You have various groups like the Heritage Foundation funding pseudo-feminist groups mm. like the Women's Liberation Federation. Um, that actually went demonstrated outside the Supreme Court against an e equality in employment decision, where surprisingly the right wing Supreme Court actually went with the law. Um, they flew over, and this was heartbreaking. Linda Bellos, yeah. veteran so socialist feminist, actually, in order to oppose trans employment rights, let herself be flown to the States to make a speech at a demonstration outside the Supreme Court, given by one of the most right wing think tanks in America. Yeah. People are becoming complicit with the international move to the right. Let's not forget that Viktor Orban in Hungary started off as a progressive politician, but when he found himself slipping in the polls, moved to the right, we started talking about Jews and queers. There is a general shift to the right, and we are the canary in the coal mine. I think everyone should be afraid, should be very afraid. Just, it's a just to war, and we're losing. I mean, just very finally, just, just quickly, what would you say to allies, both of you? What should allies be doing now? People who want to, who see this just horror show and want to do something, what, just very quickly, would you, would you say, Ugla, do you want to start? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess what I would say to people is just start challenging things, because I think that what we're seeing is we're seeing a lot of visible anti-trans things in the news and everywhere, but we're not seeing allies being as visibly supportive. And I, th and I think often it's hard because people are in positions of their jobs and they're afraid they might be reprimanded or something might happen to them if they speak out. But now is the time to speak out. Mm -hmm. You know, now is the time to use it for in particular, if you're a cis person to use that privilege you have and use that influence that you might have that trans people don't to, you know, to influence the people around you uh, and to speak up about it and just challenge things, whether it's a small thing or a big thing or a public thing be visible and, and speak up because I think now is the time for allies to really be visibly trans supportive and to really challenge these things and say, actually, I think that's wrong. And actually, I don't think that's acceptable for you to do or the BBC or whoever it is. And just be open about it and just be quite adamant about it because people need to see that there is a pushback as well. People need to see people saying, that's not right and I won't stand for it. And that is the only way that our allies can really, really show us that they they support us. And it needs to be it needs to be more than that, you know, handing in complaints, doing all the same things and just making everybody know that this is unacceptable. We won't stand for it. And and connecting it to other things, as Ross was saying, you know, this isn't just about trans people. There is a, a general pushback 
against minority rights. And we need to be able to, to connect it to the bigger picture and see where it's going. And we need to be able to, to all stand against it. And, you know, even if we don't fully understand it, you can understand that there's ways to educate yourself about it. So, you know, educate yourself, stand up about it and speak up about it, I think is the most important. I, I, I'd add to that point um, a thing I've been pushing all year because obviously it's important not to just be negative. I've all year been tweeting support for trans culture with the, the hashtag year of trans creativity. There are a lot of trans writers, trans artists, trans painters, trans dancers out there producing amazing art and people should support it because one of the things about the trans community is that we're actually really rather talented. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it's just one of those things. It just happens to be the case. So support trans art, support trans artists, support trans thinkers, read our books, read our polemics, read our poems. It's been a real honor to have both of you to very humane voices in this as i said very bleak landscape at the moment and they don't like it being said and they 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 keep ridiculing and mocking it but history will be a damning judge for these people and your voices i think when people look back at some of the things that they said and some of the things you you said and i have to say just on this there's no right or wrong way for oppressed well i mean to, to express that anger um, verbally, you know, but you've both just amidst this just constant hatred and bile thrown your way, just very calmly articulated um, the basic human response and the fact you have to you're forced into a situation where your 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 very existence is debated on a daily basis in the British media is is really gruesome. But you've 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 really articulated that in, in, in ways I think everyone who's listening, overwhelmingly cis, uh, and is not trans, will understand. So thank you so much. And do, as well said, it's so important we support our trans siblings in terms of the work that they do. Follow uh, Ugla on uh, social media, U-G-L-A-S-T-E-F-A-N-I-A, uh, -E -E and Roz, R-O-Z-K-A-V-E-N-E-Y, two brilliant thinkers who just you know, really courageously put this. And I can see in the comments, people were really touched by your humanity. Um, so thank you so much to both of you. And this is grim right now, but, you know, I think the anti-trans faction know they're going to lose. And that's partly why they're so vicious and the younger people in particular. And just quickly on this, actually, just to leave on, a, on an optimistic or a happy note, a funny note, the Australian gay footballer, Josh Cavallo, who's just come out and, uh, in Australia, and the anti-trans rights LGB alliance group, which was set up to exclude trans people and agitates purely against trans rights, they did some tweet congratulating him. We applaud the courage of Joshua Cavallo and hope he inspires others, etc., uh, etc. Et and he's responded to them, hashtag LGB with the T, love, and uh, and uh, and uh, an arm like this. So he's utterly bodied them on social media. So that's just a nice thing to end with. Thank you both to both of you. Lots of love. And uh, I'll speak to you soon. Thanks for Take having care. me. Thank um, you. It's such an honour to have two brilliant guests uh, to talk about this. And I'm just sorry again that they have to be in a position where they have to constantly debate and discuss these issues. 
when I speak to trans people, they just want to talk about the sorts of issues we all want to talk about rather than have to talk about themselves um, all the time. But more grimly, the number of trans people I speak to just say they want to leave the country because they're scared about their presence here. It's not good. It's not good at all. But things will change. Um, thanks so much, everybody, for joining us. Um, we've covered a lot today. Tory corruption, uh, COP26 and the future of humanity, and of course, the anti-trans latest saga in this country. Um, thanks for supporting us as ever on patreon.com forward slash ownjoes84, enabling our documentaries, the latest one coming out next week on property developers and the war on the working class. Uh, it's not migrants and refugees and minorities, who, of course, who are making the lives of the working class hard. It's big money, and that's what we're looking at. And we give a platform to working class people who are generally not given a platform in the media. That's what we're trying to do. So I hope you enjoy that. I just want to thank uh, everyone, uh, the Super Chats, um, uh, Phelan Fairchild, David Barata, Tad Campwell, as ever, Aidan Zeb, Woodward Wyatt. Um, thank you to everybody who's watched. Please do press the like on YouTube if you press like. That helps the algorithm. Press uh, subscribe if you're not subscribing to the channel. Um, and do also subscribe on the podcast as well, um, which is doing very, very well, which we're very, very pleased about. Lots of people, whatever you're doing, um, at the gym, going for walks, you can listen to the podcast, whatever you're doing, commuting. Um, we've got loads of guests coming up as well as other documentaries, which you all make possible. So as ever, thank you so much for your support. I hope you're all doing very well and I will see you next Sunday. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you found that informative, educational, uh, interesting, and I certainly did. Uh, do support us on Patreon to keep the show on the road, uh, forward slash Jones 84 Leave us some stars, that'd be nice. Spread the word. And I look forward to speaking to you soon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.